Thank you so much. If you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 this morning. We're continuing our series of messages through the book of Philippians. And we remember that Philippians is a thank you letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And as he's writing this thank you letter, he is encouraging the church at Philippi to stand together, unified in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. As Paul talks about this unity, he calls them to, he calls them to a humility to guard and protect that unity. And today, he's going to give us the example of all examples as it relates to this unity. The example that Paul is going to call us to when it comes to humility is Jesus Christ. Now, it's been my privilege and my pleasure since I've been your pastor to help us work through some of the greatest passages in the New Testament about Jesus. I would contend that there are four really, really great specific passages about Jesus. We've looked at Colossians 1, where Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We've looked at John 1, where Jesus is the Word of God, who's creating the world there in the beginning with the Father. But today we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, when we see the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Now here's why this is so important, church. As we learn more about who Jesus is in this passage, it's not only going to show us things about Christ, but this passage of Scripture is going to call you and I to an example and a model we're to follow in our lives as well. As we look at Jesus and as we see Him, we will see what we're called to if we know Him as Savior and Lord. Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, we read these words. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the holy, infallible, and inerrant word of God before us this morning. Would you please pray with me, church? Father, we pray in these moments that something supernatural would happen. Oh God, we pray that you would remove any distractions, what we're thinking about next, what's going to happen this week. God, would you just block all of that out right now, and would you speak to our hearts? 
God, would you help us as we hear from you this morning, not only to be hearers of your word, but would you help us to be doers of your word as well? In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. This passage starts with a command, and specifically command to think a particular way. Look in your Bibles at verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, the mind that Paul is talking about here is what is just previously discussed in the first four verses of chapter 2. Paul has just finished telling the Philippians that they're to look at others as if they're more significant than themselves. That they're to look out not only for their interests, but for the interests of others. Paul was encouraging the Philippians to embrace a humility that said, think of yourselves rightly as the supporting character you are in Christ's kingdom. And he says, look at yourself that way, look at the world that way, have this perspective in your mind. And then he has this curious phrase, the rest of verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're paying attention there in your translation, some of you will notice that my translation may be a little different than yours. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and my translation indeed reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What this is emphasizing is that the way that we receive this mindset is through the power of and the presence of Jesus. That it is impossible in human strength alone to embrace the kind of humility we're called to. That Christ's power is what enables and propels the kind of mindset we're being called to. That's what my translation kind of leans into and what the translators of this particular Bible were trying to emphasize. Others of you, however will have a different phrase in your Bible. Some of your Bibles say, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Now what this is emphasizing is the example of Jesus. That what Jesus modeled and exemplified in his life is something we should follow. So on the one hand, we've got the power of Christ making this mindset possible. On the other hand, we've got the example of Christ leaving us a model to follow. And the pivotal question for us today is, which one is it? You ever had somebody give you two options and you say, yes? The answer is both. We see in this passage the power of Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection, making this new life possible But we also see the pattern of Christ giving us an example we should follow and emulate in our lives. So here's the point that I want you to take home this morning. This is the one thing I want you to remember. Jesus is the pattern and the power for the Christian life. Jesus is the one who makes the Christian life possible. 
His death, resurrection gives us the power to have the mindset to be redeemed and restored. But Jesus is also the pattern and example we're to live out and emulate in our lives. Now, here's why this is so crucial for us today. If you really want to experience the power of Jesus, follow the pattern of Jesus. If you really want to experience the power and the grace and the forgiveness that Jesus offers, if you want to be able to lift your voice to some of the incredible words that we just sang a moment ago as we worship together, the way that you and I experience the power of Jesus is by following the pattern of Jesus. We see this kind of principle in other areas of our lives, other areas of the world. We see how people who have gone before us and accomplished great things set the stage for the present. But one of the ways that we particularly honor those who have gone before us and what they've accomplished is not just by remembering that they accomplished great things, but modeling some of the very good things that they did in the present. So take sports, for example. Um, since moving to Missouri, I've learned that there are a few St. Louis Cardinal fans in Missouri. Are there any Cardinal fans in here? You guys are pretty quiet this year. I understand why. Get it? It's okay. But one of the things we know about Cardinal baseball is that it's a pretty uh, rich legacy, right? One of the reasons why Cardinal fans are so intense about their support of their team is that there's a really rich heritage that has gone before the Cardinals. People like Pepper Martin, Tim McCarver, Ozzie Smith, Bob Gibson. I even had a Cardinal fan in the first service come up and tell me I forgot a name. Stan Musial, whoever that is. Yeah, see, there you go. Now I'm getting some of that backlash there. Uh, Jim Edmonds, even, maybe, could we even mention the name Mark McGuire? I know there's a little asterisk there, but pretty rich legacy. In fact, I've actually been to a Cardinals game and watched the fans, the Cardinal fans, cheer for the opposing team when they make a really good play. Because I've seen that they're such supporters of good baseball that when they see it, they cheer, they, they celebrate. Now, what I would submit to you is the reason the Cardinal fan base is so strong is they recognize this rich legacy that's gone before them And they're looking for their players in the present, not just to kind of loaf around and be thankful for the past, but to continue to model and exemplify that work ethic that made the cardinal so great. It's not a whole lot different in the church, right? We stand on the shoulders of people who have gone before us. Rich legacy that this church has. I'm often asked, what is your favorite thing about being a pastor? And I give kind of a weird answer, okay? My favorite thing about being a pastor is doing the funerals for very, very faithful saints. When I got to Riverview, there was a group of 90-plus people in our church that, um, frankly, I think I've mentioned this in a few places, I was terrified of these people at first. Um, And then I realized how much they loved me and how much they loved this church. And over the past few years, I've 
I've been the I've been in the blessed position to do many of their funerals and to talk about their lives and talk about their service and the way they love Jesus and love their families. And there's a richness to the, the legacy we as a church have with people that have gone before us. But I would submit to you that one of the ways we honor their legacy is not by just being aware of it, but by trying to model some of the things these people that have gone before us did. In their lives. Some of the example that they set before us. What this passage is saying is that Jesus Christ has accomplished an incredible victory for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. But the way that we experience and really receive and honor the Lord that we serve is by modeling our lives after Jesus. Jesus is both the power and the pattern for the Christian life. I want to show you from this passage of Scripture three ways Jesus functions as our power and our pattern. First thing I want you to notice about this passage is that Jesus is status-renouncing. Jesus is status-renouncing. Look at verse 6 in your Bibles says, who, this is speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. This passage shows us the incredible status Jesus renounced. It was none other than being in the form of God. Now, that word form means in the nature or substance of God. One of the questions in the early church that they debated was whether Jesus was made of the same stuff as God the Father. And this passage was one of the places the early church looked to definitively answer the question, yes, Jesus Christ is made of the same stuff that his Father is made of. And so what that means is it would be a mistake to think that Jesus began in the manger. Jesus did not have his beginning in the manger in the New Testament. Jesus has always existed as God. He has always been, he is, and he always will be. He was there at the very beginning of time when he spoke the world into existence in the presence of the Father and the Spirit. He's always been. He is and he always will be. But what this passage makes clear is that even though Jesus had this incredible status, an incredible privileged position, notice this phrase in verse 6, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, his attitude was not to use his privileged position to deny the role and the task the Father had set for him in bringing redemption to the world. No, Christ laid that aside. He renounced his status. Notice what the Bible says. He poured himself out and took the form of a servant. The Bible makes it clear that though Jesus had a position of being God because he is God, he laid that aside to humble himself, lowering himself. The Bible even calls us 
pouring himself out to take on the form of a servant, and in verse 7, being found in the likeness of men. You see, what this passage is teaching is it's teaching the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus. That is to say that while Jesus is fully God, when he entered the world through Mary's womb, he also took on a perfect, sinless human nature. In other words, Jesus is fully God, fully man, one person. Jesus is not a mixture of God and man, like we've sprinkled a little bit of each of them inside him. Jesus is not only, he's, a, he's also not a multiple personality disorder where he's God sometime, but he's human the other. Jesus in this union is simultaneously God and human. And the Bible tells us that he did this as a result of his attitude of not taking his privileged position. Now, here's why this is so important for you and for me. Jesus shows us that the faithfulness he calls us to will oftentimes be a faithfulness in obscurity. What Jesus shows us, the pattern we're to follow in this passage, is what we're often called to is an obscurity in which we're serving Jesus, faithfully loving him, and no one else knows about that. You see, it's not just that Jesus renounced his position of power. It's that Jesus shows us what use of real power looks like. He never stopped being God in any of these moments. Jesus at any moment could have snapped his fingers and had legions and legions of angels at his side in a moment's notice. This is not that Jesus gave up all his power. It's that Jesus used his power to serve He used the power that God had given him and that he had as God to be a servant to you and to me. I think Jesus' entire life exemplified this, but I think there was not a moment where this was not more on the scene than in his entrance into the world. You remember the story, right? Mary is pregnant with Jesus. They're riding to Bethlehem there and they show up to the inn and there's no room, right? No room in the inn. But the baby's coming, they've got to do something, so they go and find a stable. Be our modern day equivalent to a barn. And there on the floor of that barn, surrounded by cows, other animals, the king of the universe enters the world. Think about this. Jesus doesn't enter the world in a palace. He doesn't enter the world surrounded by powerful people that had all the right titles and positions, Jesus enters into the humble origin of a barn. And then, in case we didn't understand what God's trying to tell us, God goes and announces Christ's birth to a group of people. Anybody remember who God announced the birth to first? Shepherds. The shepherds were the first... Did you baa at me? Somebody baa like a sheep up here. Um, Just making sure there's not a sheep in here. Uh, No, he revealed the birth of Christ and the entrance of our Savior to shepherds. 
Now, to us, that doesn't really register as being that significant, but what we need to remember is that shepherds in this particular day and age in which Jesus was born, they were the lowest of the low. They were untrustworthy, transient kind of people that the culture kind of saw as outcasts. And these are the people that God reveals his precious son to first. What's God trying to tell us? He's trying to show us that Jesus is not coming with pomp and circumstance as somebody that's coming to to be served. He's showing us that the son of God is coming in humility to be a servant to the world. Jesus renounced his status so that he could serve us. Christ's example is important to us because we too are called to an obscurity of service where we believe that serving Jesus and knowing him is enough whether no one ever knows our names. You see, this is important and challenging all at the same time because the cultural assumption is that if you are unknown, you are unimportant. It's very easy to buy the lie that if you are unknown, you are obviously unimportant. Some of the most popular television shows out today are are shows like America's Got Talent, which are great shows that display incredible talent and and people get recognition and all this. And it's a great show, but it's very easy as we watch this kind of cultural kind of rhythm to think, you know, if you're really going to matter in life, you've got to be known. If you're really going to make a difference, your name's got to be in light. You've got to be somebody. And if we're not careful, it's very easy to think of our whole lives in terms of this kind of success where we live for the applause and the recognition and the honor that this world bestows on people. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus did not enter the world to applause in the presence of kings, he entered in obscurity. And that's the same obscurity he calls you and I to. If you go on the internet and type in the book, Embracing Obscurity, you'll find a book in which you will not know who the author is. Whoever the person is that wrote Embracing Obscurity, they decided that they wanted to be consistent. And so they remained anonymous. So if you go today, this afternoon, or don't do it now on your phones, because some of you are tempted to do that, but if you go later and type in Embracing Obscurity, you will not find the name of an author, because he believed, she believed in what she was writing. They were embracing an obscurity of never being known. Church family, that's a good illustration of what we are called to. We are called to serve Jesus, knowing that knowing him is enough for us, whether we are never known or applauded or recognized. So let me ask you a question. How are you viewing success today? How are you viewing success? Do you have to be known, applauded, recognized to think that your life matters? What if you are never, ever known in the history books? Is Jesus enough for you and for me? One of the reasons I mention this is because I think this is one of the incredible dangers with social media, right? One of the dangers with Facebook, Twitter, Instagram is that we use these as sounding boards, as places to receive applause 
and recognition. Now, I know all of you think your grandchildren are the most beautiful in the world. I get that. All of you individually think that, and so you're posting pictures of your grandchildren. I'm not talking about that. There's a place for healthy communication to celebrate what God's doing in your life. But I think in this day and age in which we are more connected, yet more isolated than ever, we need to be careful how we approach those kinds of forms of media. There are some of you in this room that in this season of your life, God has called you to very obscure tasks. Can I tell you one of the most obscure tasks I see in this world today? I think it's parenthood, and specifically motherhood. So I watch my beautiful wife minister to our children. It is very easy to think that some of the things that you are called to as a mom are obscure, and because nobody sees them, they are unimportant. But can I just say something to the moms in the room? I know it's not Mother's Day, but can I go here? Moms, what you are doing is you shape and invest and guide your children to Jesus is some of the most important ministry that happens every day in this whole world. You may never be recognized. I know your, your kids, when you wake up, are not surrounded by your bed applauding because you're about to start another day. But can I just tell you that, moms, the task that you are called to, though obscure, is of inestimable value for the kingdom. Do not believe that because you are unknown, that you are unimportant. You are serving Jesus as he did in obscurity, and knowing him, we believe that is enough. Number two, Jesus also modeled a self-sacrificing mentality. Look at verse 8, see how Jesus modeled self-sacrifice. It says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, what this transition tells us is that the, the status that Jesus renounced made possible the mission the Father called him to. You see, Jesus was fully God, fully man. We know this. But we have to remember that humanity owed a debt because of our sin that only God could pay. So God became man so that as human being, as a human being, Jesus could make a payment on our account for the debt that we owed, but that as God, he could perfectly fulfill the requirements of the law. We can never keep ourselves. Jesus, as fully God and fully man, was perfectly positioned to offer his life as the perfect, innocent substitute on our behalf. And that all happened because he renounced his status. The self-sacrificial love of Jesus. He was humbling himself. Notice what your Bible says to the point of death, this death on the cross. But notice how Paul says it. He says a death, even a death on the cross. You see, one of the reasons the, the writers of the New Testament make such a big deal about the cross is that the cross in the New Testament era was scandalous. It was shameful. We don't see the cross the same way they did in the New Testament. I think part of it's because we see crosses so many different places, right? There are crosses on buildings. Some of you are wearing crosses today. In fact, you could probably find several crosses on pictures or, or media of some sort in this room. There are crosses everywhere. 
And so what we miss is that when Jesus humbled himself, it wasn't just any kind of death. Paul wants to make it clear that the death that Jesus died was a death on a cross. See, the scandal of the cross was, in fact, in part because it was a slow death. Jesus died very slowly. You see, when somebody was hung on a cross, the way they engineered this instrument of death was to prolong torture and prolong death as long as possible. See, if you're hanging on a cross to breathe, you had to lift yourself up. You had to push yourself up so you could get a breath only to have your full body weight hanging down on you again. And what would happen after hours and hours of this, eventually somebody would tire out and they would no longer be able to push themselves up and they would die from asphyxiation. It would be like somebody drowning right in front of you. It was a horrible death. It was a slow death. But we also know the scandal of the cross was in part because it was an exposed death. See, the Romans did not crucify people in some dark, dusty corner of Jerusalem. They crucified people outside the city so hundreds, potentially thousands of people could walk by and see these people on the cross. Jesus hung naked on a cross exposed in front of hundreds, potentially thousands of people that walked in and out of Jerusalem. Because this death was so slow and so exposed, it was incredibly shameful. A Roman cross was reserved for the worst of the worst. A Roman citizen would never have been crucified on a cross. It was reserved normally for criminals and thieves. And the question that resounds in our hearts and down through the ages is why? You ever thought about that? I mean, why didn't God just snap his fingers and forgive us? He's God, right? He's powerful enough. He made the world. Why didn't he just snap his fingers and forget? Why, why, why go through all this? It is because God's holy. Because he's a perfect and righteous God. He had to punish our sin. My sin. Your sin. Our lying. Our stealing. Our lust. Our hatred and unforgiveness, all of these things warrant and deserve God's righteous punishment. And when Jesus hangs on the cross, he's saying, this is the only way for you and I to be forgiven. It's the only way for you and I to be made right with God. Because in Jesus Christ, we see the love of God, that he offers his son's life in our place. But we also see the holy righteousness of God, because sin must be punished. Brothers and sisters, this is Jesus who offers his life for death, even death on a cross. Now here's the point. The way you and I experience the power of the cross is by following the pattern of the cross. How do we experience the grace and mercy won for us through Jesus? It is by dying to ourselves recognizing we have a problem and that problem is sin. And when we repent and turn from our sin and instead trust our Savior and follow the pattern of the cross, we receive and enjoy the power of the cross. The power and the pattern of the cross come together 
in this beautiful sacrifice that we're called to. If you're here today and you do not know the Jesus that we're talking about, the way that you can receive his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace is to follow this pattern. Die to yourself. Stop trusting your good works, your church attendance and your baptism. Stop trusting your intellect, your ability, and repent. Humble yourself, dying to yourself, and instead depending on Jesus and what he's done for you. The Bible makes it clear that the way that we enjoy the power of the cross is by following the pattern of the cross. Thirdly and finally, not only do we see that Christ renounced his status and sacrificed himself, we also see that he was God vindicating. He was trusting in God's vindication. Look in your Bibles at verse 9, and notice how the shift moves from talking about Jesus and what Jesus is doing to what God the Father begins to do. Therefore, in response to Christ's humiliation, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now this exaltation, in part, to be sure, is talking about Christ's resurrection. Christ, three days later, the stone rolled away and Jesus victoriously appeared. But I believe this passage is going beyond that because it's talking about not only the resurrection of Jesus, but an extraordinary honor that God bestows on Jesus through a particular name. This word, God highly exalted, it means to honor somebody in an especially large way, extraordinary. We see this kind of honoring in our culture. We see people winning Nobel Peace Prizes or Pulitzer Prizes, but probably in American culture, one of the greatest honors that can be bestowed, especially from a military perspective, is the Congressional Medal of Honor. The Medal of Honor is a honor that's given to people for extraordinary valor and bravery. The Medal of Honor, from a military perspective, is so rare, it's only been given about 3,000 times. One of the more recent Uh, givings of the Medal of Honor was in 2012. There was an American physician who'd been working with an aid organization, relief organization in Afghanistan, and the Taliban captured him and was holding him hostage. And there was a particular petty officer, a Navy SEAL named Byers, who with his men were dropped in into into Afghanistan to rescue this doctor. On the night of December 8th, 2012, Byers and his unit were inserted by helicopter. They hiked for more than four hours over difficult terrain to reach the compound where this doctor was being held by the Taliban. In the pitch dark of night, pitch black, Byers and his fellow Navy SEALs stormed this compound. As soon as they got there, one of his friends was killed. Byers was Undeterred, he burst in the room and began to fight and shoot some of the Taliban fighters. After some struggle went on, he recognized an American voice. He recognized somebody speaking English. And with no concern for his welfare, this Navy SEAL threw himself on this doctor and began to shield him from the bullets that were whizzing by. This Navy SEAL exposed himself to incredible harm and danger, all in the name of protecting this doctor. 
After a long period of time in which the Navy SEALs were struggling with the Taliban, they were able to extract this doctor and bring him back to safety. And when this Navy SEAL buyers got back to America, it became clear that he had gone above and beyond. He had sacrificed his life for this doctor. He'd lived, others had died, but he had opened himself up to incredible harm, all in the name of saving this man. He was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for his bravery and his valor. What I want you to know, brothers and sisters, is that what Jesus has done is the greatest act of bravery and valor we will ever behold. Because the sins of the world, the fate of the universe rested on Jesus' shoulders And what this is saying is that when Jesus died and when he rose again, God put around his neck, as it were, a medal of honor that recognizes that Jesus is greater and higher and better than anything we will ever come into contact in this world. This passage makes it very clear that this name that's bestowed on Jesus is very specific. I want you to notice how people respond to this name in verse 10 and 11, but I especially want you to notice the name that he's given. Look at verse 10 to see how Jesus is honored. He says, so that at this name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This passage is saying that God has fixed a date. He has set an outcome upon Christ's return in which every knee is going to bow to Jesus. That's an act of worship, an act of submission. And every tongue is going to say a particular thing about Jesus, and that is that He is Lord. Now, don't miss this. This is important. It's very easy to read that Lord word and to think, well, that's just a position of authority or or power. And that's true. It's partially true. But what Paul has in mind when he's commenting on this is he has in mind an Old Testament category that we need to see. You see, in the Old Testament, the title Lord was reserved for the covenant name for God. In fact, you'll see in the Old Testament part of your Bible, oftentimes when the word Lord is mentioned, it's in all caps, capital L-O-R-D. And whenever you see that title in the Old Testament, you're seeing an English rendering of a Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word that's there is the word Yahweh. And it means the covenant name for God. It's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's the God of promise. And what you and I need to recognize is Paul is calling to mind this category from the Old Testament and saying this, God the Father is saying that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, the descendant of Abraham who would be a blessing to all the nations. He's a fulfillment of the promise of David, that David would have someone from his line who would reign of the throne forever and ever. And Paul is saying, this is who Jesus is. He's this Old Testament figure that you've been looking for and longing for. This is Jesus. He is the Lord, and he exists for the glory and praise of God. Church family, what we have to recognize 
is we are serving and trusting someone who in the end received final vindication. Though Jesus was maligned, misunderstood, beaten, mocked, killed. In the end, God gives Jesus a vindication that says, this is the Lord. Let me tell you why that matters for your life and my life. We can rest in knowing that our final vindication is secure with Jesus. We can rest in knowing that the promise of our final reward of being in the presence of Jesus as his child, as his friend, is fixed and secure. But we also need to see the pattern that Jesus has shared for us. The pattern that Jesus has given us is one that says, even in the midst of difficulty and strife, we entrust our future to a sovereign God. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2 that kind of unpacks this idea. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says this, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But listen to this. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. One of the ways we endure hardship and difficulty and pain in the present is by remembering that our future and our coming reward is fixed in the hand of Jesus. Though we may endure losses and difficulty in the present, what this passage reminds us of is that our future is fixed. We enjoy and experience the power of Christ and his final vindication by following the pattern of Jesus. It reminds me of the life of a man named John Nash. Many of you have seen the movie, A Beautiful Mind. Uh, John Nash was played by Russell Crowe in that movie. Uh, John Nash was a brilliant mathematician and professor. John Nash in his career uh, rose very quickly because of his brilliance. Uh, he established himself as a preeminent scholar and had academic positions at some of the best places in the world. But at a significant moment in John Nash's life, as it's especially portrayed in this movie, it becomes clear that John Nash is a delusional, paranoid schizophrenic. He sees things that aren't there. He, he lives this kind of paranoid life, afraid that everyone's out to get him. And his career and his family and his life just begin to implode. Decades after decades of medication and treatment, he's even institutionalized at one point. He endures all of these things. But at the end of his life, his, comp his accomplishments early in his life are beginning to be reexamined. And the folks at the Nobel Institute recognize that some of John Nash's theories, especially as they relate to economics, have been incredibly impactful. And so in some of the final years of John Nash's life, he is awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for economics. It's a beautiful scene in the movie. If you haven't seen it, I highly commend it. It's a, it's a great film to watch him walk through that only to be vindicated in the end. And here's the point I want to make to you. 
you and I are too, just as Jesus exemplified for us, we're called to endure loss and difficulty and heartache. But what awaits us in the end, brothers and sisters, is far better than a Nobel Peace Prize. What awaits us in the end are the beautiful words that we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Can I just tell you, hearing those words from Jesus, spoken about me and spoken about you, is better than anything, anything, anything this world could ever give to us. How do we endure difficulty and heartache and loss in the present? It is by following the pattern of Christ and remembering and trusting that God is holding our future fixed in his hand. Church, let's pray together, remembering that Jesus is not only our power, but he is our pattern. Father, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you that Christ indeed has won an incredible victory, a victory that we will never get over singing about and declaring and praising you for.